Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hello, it's Gory Bose Taylor. This finest hour, Andrew Marshbacks, Wordsworth Books, brings us his usual inspiring collection of the best of the new books. And you'll listen with amazement and amusement to Jonathan Shapiro, aka Zapiro, chatting to Philip Todris. Terribly, there were the fires perhaps be reassured by Mona Robbins leafing through Fire to Flower, a chronology after a wildfire in Fainbos by Ruth Garland, an appropriate name there, and Greg Nicholson. Cindy Moritz was delighted with Here I Am, Johnson Saffron Foer's first novel in 10 or 11 years. Tough subject, terrific read. We chat to Michael Dupree about his alluring and enriching biography written with Jeremy Dronfield. It's called Dr. James Barry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time, The Triumphs and Tragedies of James Barry's Life in the Early 1800s, much of it in Cape Town. Mike Fitzjames sets our nerves a jangle with three chilling thrillers by Tony Park, Lee Child and James Patterson, while Beverly Rossmuller ups the ante with Shari Lapina's debut novel, The Couple Next Door, an unexpectedly successful thriller. Melvin Minar delights in Tim Peake's wonderful Hello, Is This Planet Earth? And finally, Vanessa Levenstein is beguiled by Bernard Schlink's The Woman on the Stairs. Do stay tuned for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers or a copy of Zipiero's Dead President Walking. Andrew Marshbanks, brilliant new books there from Wordsworth Books. Hi everyone, well, welcome to the new year. And, you know, it's the new year, we've all made new year resolutions, and the first thing that we all make the resolution about, obviously, is is how disgustingly fat we all are after Christmas, feeling totally guilty about what we've all eaten and enjoyed, I must say, and uh, how unfit we are. Well, I'm going to help you with the first thing here. The Real Meal Revolution Banting 2 has just come out, came out just before Christmas. And this is a book, it expands on what the Real Meal Revolution was all about, it diagnoses more. It gets more into the detail of stuff. Because I got the feeling that the first book was rushed out. Well, it was rushed out. And with the theories, etc. And somehow they missed a bit of the detail. So this puts in all the detail. It changes the famous chart as to what you should and shouldn't eat and makes things a bit more iffy and uh, other stuff you can eat uh, quantities of. I don't think I'm explaining this very well, but it's really beautifully explained in the book. It is a diet that fits in, that you can uh, uh, suit to your ordinary way of life. You don't have to go totally low-carb, as long as you cut down the sugar and the refined carbohydrates. I think that's the key thing. It's a very, very good book to have for anyone who is dieting or decides to eat well for the new year. That's The Real Meal Revolution, Banting 2, and it's published by Mercury. And 
While we're on the subject of eating, everyone knows Cheryl Lezinski and the Oranjezik City Farm. This was a food project that was started very unusually in the middle of Oranjezik on, on that sort of empty, I think it was bowling greens or whatever it was up there. And she made a farm out of it. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. Had open days and sales and this sort of thing. The city council had to cut down the market because it didn't have various facilities and public, uh, public things that, that are needed, loos and all that sort of stuff. So it moved to the waterfront, and that's where it's a living at the moment, and sells beautiful organic vegetables and various other things. But it's a fascinating story, the story of how you can start a farm in the middle of a city like Cape Town. I mean, that is amazing when you think about it. Who would have thought of doing it? Only Cheryl Lezinski. It's a brilliant book, beautifully photographed. There's some recipes in there, tips on how to garden. Lovely, lovely book, well worth having. And that's 280 rand. Now, uh, sticking to the local, the historian Hermann Chilimi, he has been around for a long time. He's written lots of histories of South Africa, all of them very highly regarded. He is a prolific author and an academic. And we all know he was there in the middle of the Afrikaans, uh, not the Brodebant, but the deep Afrikaans society who did the apartheid years. And he's writing from within that and as part of that society. And so that is really fascinating. Here we get a biography of someone, uh, an autobiography of someone who was part of the structure of the apartheid regime and who actually fought against it in his own way. I think uh, he's an extremely intelligent man. He writes beautifully. His historical treatises are always excellent. And his histories of South Africa, always well worth reading. This is a fascinating man, highly intelligent, fascinating. That's a historian, Herman Chilirmi, an autobiography. Then there's a new book out by Helen MacDonald. Remember, she wrote Hawk, which was a huge smash bestseller. And now she's done a new book called Falcon, which is written around a falcon. She is a wonderful author. She ran multitudes of prizes with Hawk. And this book, which I have halfway through, is just brilliant. Can't wait to get back to it. It's about the myths and legends of falcons. Just brilliant. 230 Rand. Falcon by Helen MacDonald. And then finally, I've got the new Michael Lewis book. This came out just before Christmas. And if you remember Michael Lewis, he wrote The Big Short which explained to us exactly what went wrong in the great crash of 2007-2008. He's a brilliant author, and this time he's looking at human beings, how we are extremely bad at making decisions. And this, there was deep research done by two Israelis, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. In Israel, in the 60s Israel, they were all part of the the new Israel, the, the hopeful Israel starting out. And Kahneman was the son of a Holocaust survivor. Tversky was a, a, a huge uh, intellect. And one of these people that uh, you met him in a room, and he just overpowered everything. Marvelous person. Uh, they researched the ways in which human mind errs systematically when forced to make judgments about uncertain situations. They shed light on this, and their ideas revolutionized everything 
from big data, sport, high finance, how we're governed, and how we spend. And it's a fascinating story about these two men who changed the way we think and actually won a Nobel Prize while they did it. Brilliant, brilliant reading. It's called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, and it's 455 Rand. That's all for now. Happy reading. Goodbye. And here's a pre-record to amuse and amaze you of Philip Todras talking to Zapiero. Zapiero, dead president walking. Jonathan, this is your 21st book. I mean, that's quite something. Do you feel like you've come of age? Uh, that's the way the publishers are looking at it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's actually the 21st annual and the 23rd book overall because, um, I've, no wait, 20. Gee, there's 24, um, oh, because there are another three uh, speciality books as well, yeah. Well, is it true, though, that I've heard that you're laying charges against Tuli Madonsela for a statement she made public? She says, <laughs> I don't always agree with Zapiro's cartoons, but his wit, brilliance, and relevance can't be ignored. I mean, can you let her get away with that? She doesn't agree with you all the time. Oh, it was fantastic that she gave me a comment at all. And and um, I would not have expected anything less of Tuli that, uh, you know, when I, I asked for a comment and uh, she didn't gush and, um, you know, say everything is perfect or whatever. She, she's critical. And, uh, and uh, that was... It's, you know, Madiba actually once gave me a statement for a, a, a shout for one of my books, which was also a bit like that. It had a kind of a... A, a poised sort of double-edged thing where he said, uh, very exciting and uh, quite accurate. And, and for me, the word quite uh, it was, was, was a strange word, almost like rather. Um, but, it, but I think it's the antiquated usage of language. And with Tuli Maroncella, I think the fact that she doesn't, she happens not to agree with all the cartoons, is absolutely fine. It's brilliant. She, she was very happy to give a, a, an endorsement of of them in as well. So I presume you're not going to take it to court. <laughs> but oh, tell no, me I about... I think she's, she's, she's one of the best things that's happened to this country in the last, I don't know how many years. Well, that's also interesting for me because I'm looking at the covers of the last 20 years and it really is a socio-political history and that's another problem that I do have with you. I don't really see you as a cartoonist. Yes, you use the cartoon as a medium to be a social-political commentator. Would you go with that? No, well, absolutely. I mean, when, when I started out as a cartoonist, it was because... I was really I was an activist and and cartoons were my medium of expression so the, and then the two things kind of came together and gradually I suppose I became more of a commentator with an activist bent than uh, than an underground activist so it's just been a little bit of a shift which took years and years to happen I also had to beat a little bit of political correctness out of myself because I, I think I started out as very ide ideologically kind of focused very much UDF, ANC, uh, sort of down the line, um, in, in a way even propagandistic. And, and gradually I felt it was more important to, to read between the lines and be critical and not, not be a praise singer, just, just really look at things and kind of help to, to start debates or join debates, help people to see things in, in a different way. And having a look over the last 20 years, are you able to sort of give some sort of judgment or call or see the changing landscape? Oh, you've commented how you yourself have changed, how you see things changing in front of you or some comment along those lines? You know, there have been some particular shifts. I mean, for me, I was actually right from the time that the ANC was unbanned, I, was, I, I felt that I was a, a little bit thrown 
because I was in I was in a little bit of a vacuum. I remember that one of the things that really threw me was that the ANC immediately dissolved the UDF structures, and I thought that was a huge mistake. I was out of the country at the time, and and I still think it was a mistake. But I think looking at it from out of the country gave me a perspective that 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 that, that sharpened something, uh, and then then I threw myself. Health for leather, leather into the into the, the the new South Africa under Nelson Mandela and under the the what are, you know the best of what the ANC had to offer. I think things started to shift even during his his term. Um, you, you saw the influence of the kind of real politic of Thabo Mbeki, and then Madiba did uh, as he promised he would and stepped down. And I think that Thabo Mbeki's uh, the, the and Becky started to shift debates into things and, and, and started to move towards the arms deal and started to move p- towards uh, HIV denialism and so on. So I think already, you know, I was already very angry about a lot of those things and about corruption. And under Jacob Zuma, um, well, uh, sort of an anti-intellectual uh, cabal has taken root that's just about feathering, feathering nests. And, uh, Which proves terrible. the point that I always have with you, that me- doing cartoons might be about being funny, but it's actually a very serious pursuit. Oh yeah, I'm pretty. I'm a pretty serious guy as well. <laughs> well, it, but if you want to have a good laugh and have a sense of what happened during the year, as you can always do, this time you pick up a copy of Dead President Walking by Zapero, his 21st annual, and it's published by Jakana, and it is available for 165 rand. And we've just heard, and am I right in saying this, that uh, Zipero has left the Mail and Guardian and is now online with the Daily Maverick. Well, that sounds terrific. And here, right up front, is our easy-peasy competition question. To win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth books vouchers or a copy of Zipero's Dead President Walking. What is the name that award-winning... South African cartoonist Jonathan Shapiro is known as. Is it Zepero? Is it Donald? We're waiting for your calls on 021-401-1013. Bernard Robbins, after our devastating fires, perhaps it's reassuring to leaf through Fire to Flower, a chronology after a wildlife, after a wildfire in Fambos by Ruth Garland and Greg Nicholson. Fire to Flower, a chronology after a wildfire in Fainbos, by Ruth Garland and Greg Nicholson, published by the Paderberg Sustainability Initiative in 2016. This large, heavy, stunningly beautiful hardback is both an exquisite visual record of how Fainbos regenerates after wildfire and an important contribution to South African botany, and that of the Cape Floral Kingdom in particular. In January 2011, a fire broke out on the Paderberg, that lone mountain that looms up on the plains between Malmesbury, Wellington, Paul and Durbanville. Some 75% of the mountain above the farms on the lower slopes was burnt, and, being the first fire in 25 years, the event offered a fine opportunity to record and observe the plant species as they germinated and flowered after the destruction. On the historic Fondeling estate, one of the four Paderberg farms, Dr. Bridget Johnson set about transforming opportunity into reality. She succeeded, but as we can see, one aspect took more than five years to achieve in the form of this unique volume. 
She engaged botanist photographer Greg Nicholson to observe, record and photograph the plants over 18 months in consultation with the Compton Herbarium at Kirstenbosch. Not only did Nicholson identify 1,000 species, but discovered one new to science. Walking the mountain for the best part of two years gave him an amazing overview of the animal, bird and insect inhabitants as well, and appealing photographs of these are also included. As Dr. Eugene Moll notes in his foreword, the book's contents capture the very essence of life on and around the Paderberg, then interpret and portray a complex ecosystem in simple everyday language. For this, praise must go to Ruth Garland, a writer whose passion for natural history started early in life. Setting the scene through geology and climate, she moves on to discuss flora and fire, the latter so critical in the life cycle of this region. After the fire, which raged for five days, Bridget Johnson, along with neighbouring farmers, established the PSA, or Paderberg Sustainability Initiative, which prioritises both flora and fire. The Paderberg Fire Protection Association now provides support services to farmers in terms of tools, safety, training, alien control and firebreaks. Fondling Estate has become renowned for its fine wines, which are of two of which are named after endemic Fainbos, Babiana, an impressive Shannon lead white blend, and Erica, a spicy Shiraz blend, both worthy tributes to their floral sources. A new limited edition red blend named Philosophy will be launched in March, featuring a painting of a rare Paderberg flower. From the sepia tones and acrid smoke of the post-fire landscape, readers are taken on a seasonal photographic journey as plant life emerges. Starting in autumn with the Pluchtate Blomiki, the little plow-time flower appearing first, followed by Oxalis and Vata Blomiki, and later the early flowering bulbs, we see a gradual transformation of the mountainside that continues in a diverse procession of colour, texture and beauty to late summer. For those amateur and professional botanists who want more information, another section offers detail on the species illustrated. For those who just love beauty, the close-ups of petals, leaves, stamens and stems provide a visual feast that is heart-stopping and seldom seen. As a valuable record, the title is unique, as an inspiration to generations of present and future guardians of our flora, this substantial term will prove priceless. Among the many people to be thanked for their contribution is one of Fondling's partners, Britain Anthony Ward, who sponsored the hefty cost of the publication. Cindy Moritz, you were delighted with Jonathan Saffron Foer's latest, Here I Am. I tackled this hefty novel with trepidation, as there was much hype around it being Jonathan Safran Foer's first in ten years after Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. An American Jewish writer hailing from Washington, D.C., now living in Brooklyn, New York, Foer is amicably divorced from fellow author Nicole Krauss, with whom he has two young children. This is his packaged, stream-of-consciousness-type script on divorce and Israel. Confronting the enduring question of what it means to be human, in Here I Am, the author scrutinizes what it is to be a liberal Jew in America now, and it feels like 10 years' worth of 
thorough analysis of every life event, large or small, has been crafted into this fragmented yet cohesive telling of a snapshot month in the lives of the fictional Bloch family of Washington, D.C. So much is crammed into this one month that it's hard to believe that anything that happened to the Blochs before or after ever mattered. But this is the talent of the author, to draw our focus to a framed series of events, make them relevant to one another, and when in the end the reader zooms out with a sigh of relief after the frenzied narrative comes to a close, themes and concepts filter out of the literal event of the story, leaving one to contemplate notions that outlive the 571 pages of writing. For Foa, it's a book about home and choice. But there is nothing simple or literal about either notion, and both are explored at every level from the perspective of every generation. The storyline could be straightforward. The Blochs, Jacob and Julia and their three sons, live in Washington, D.C. with Jacob's parents nearby as well as his own grandfather, Isaac. Their son, Sam, is in trouble for writing bad words in Hebrew class and his bar mitzvah is in jeopardy. Jacob and Julia disagree on how to deal with it and it turns out they don't agree about much anymore. Their marriage is in dire straits and when Julia finds apparent evidence of Jacob having an illicit affair, it finally breaks down. Meanwhile, Holocaust survivor Isaac is resisting being moved to a care home. The family dog is on his last legs. The Israeli cousins arrive for Sam's bar mitzvah, which may or may not still happen. And then there is a major earthquake in the Middle East, putting Israel at risk. Jacob and Julia try to hold it all together, even planning conversations to have with their boys, attempting to keep life normal until after the bar mitzvah and grossly underestimating what their children know and how resilient they are in the face of the raw truth. For the Israelis, priority is to get back home and there is debate over whether Jacob's priority should be the same. And then there's the dog, Argus, who plays a small but consistent role. Incontinent, beloved, he seems the hardest one to let go. It was by chance that the novel was published around the time that Leonard Cohen released his latest and last album, You Want It Darker, which has, as its eponymous track, lyrics that include the word Hineni, the Hebrew for Here I Am, referring to a quote from the book of Genesis, which signals readiness. The novel challenges liberal American Jews on their morphing relationship with Israel. Are they prepared, as in the past, to declare, Here I Am?, and what about their relationship to their physical home? In a divorce, does moving home irrevocably change the relationship of parent and child? It brought up philosophical questions about the nature of modern family and parenting styles, and then our connection to where we live, how our context shapes our home, life. It also made me consider whether the tendency to overanalyze is ultimately detrimental. It is always more satisfying for the reader to discover larger issues themselves, but I will suggest not to be put off by the occurrence of sudden, crude lines of text, even swathes of explicit description. The novel works as a whole and not in parts, and by the end one is left with reflections relating to the story that supersede the gritty recounting of that month in the lives of the Bloch family. And here again is our easy-peasy competition question. To win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth books vouchers or a copy of Zipero's Dead President Walking, what is the name that award-winning South African cartoonist Johnson Shapiro is known as? Is it Zipero? 
Is it Gordon? Ring us with your answer on 021 401 And here's my pre-recorded chat with Michael Dupree about his brilliant biography of Dr. James Barry. Michael Dupree, let's chat about your glorious, engaging, brilliantly researched and beautifully written biography. It's called Dr. James Barry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time, which you co-wrote with Jeremy Dronfield. Actually, Mike, before we go any further, I'm going to ask you to read that one sentence that is so divine. Just that one sentence on page 118. The Cape Peninsula was an astounding, jagged-toothed jawbone of land and mountain. It was as if a divine hand had taken a piece of Africa's mountainous coast and dragged it several miles seaward, stretching behind it a broad isthmus of flat land edged north and south by sandy bays. I think that's so beautiful. And, in fact, the London Sunday Times last month, only last month, declared it their biography of 2016. I don't see it being bettered this year. James Barry was an Irish woman. She was Margaret Anne Barclay, who had given birth to a daughter after a rape and who became, as a man, one of the most respected doctors of his, her time. You tell a tale of triumph and tragedy. Tell us her triumphs, her successes. The most significant success, I believe, was the fact that she maintained a masquerade as a, a man for no less than 56 years. That, uh, to my knowledge, that hasn't been uh, exceeded at all. She qualified an MD at Edinburgh in 1812. As a man? As, as a youth, as a young, young man. And she was the first woman in the United Kingdom to do so. And as far as I can see, she was the first woman by many years to qualify in the United States. That was 37 years after Barry's qualification. And the first woman to qualify in England was Elizabeth Garrett, who qualified 53 years later. So that is some record. She was undertook the first, her tri- another triumph, another success, was the first successful caesarean section in the British Empire, the first woman to join the British Army legitimately, the first woman to legitimately receive a commissioned officer rank, and even to rise to the rank of brigadier. And she was the first person I know of who gave Florence Nightingale a dressing down. That was some achievement. She was recognised also as by all her colleagues and um, army members as an exceptionally effective medical officer. And all of that is absolutely wonderful, but then, of course, there are the tragedies. It's your lovely writing that carries us through those. Um, Her relationship with Lord Charles Somerset, would you call that a tragedy? Or It was... uh, She had a very intense relationship with Lord Charles Somerset. Whether it was consummated or not, I cannot say. There's no doubt it was a very close relationship. I can not been able to find, and it's not surprising, any evidence that the relationship was consummated. But there was the placard affair, wasn't there? Yes, the placard affair was a, a scandalous assertion that uh, somebody had seen, the writer of the placard had seen Dr. Barry and Lord Charles having, having sex. But it was never proven. And the individual who uh, promoted the placard 
was an extraordinary person. I don't want to go into that now because it's. But he was a, a, an escaped convict from Australia. Um, that's a long story of its own. Um, and uh, Mike, you spent a decade researching James Barry. You had access to material not before in the public domain. Yes, not necessarily not in the public domain. Certainly the p papers from the Duke of Beaufort's archives were not in the public domain, and it was uh, a, a wonderful opportunity to to study those papers, which uh, explained the last year or so of Lord Charles Somerset's life with Barry in attendance. But uh, the other papers, um, there are papers in the archives here at Cape Town, London archives and various other um, places in that Barry had been, which are difficult to access and uh, only th through sheer determination did I manage to get copies of these, for example, from Malta, from Canada and that sort of thing. So I did access far more material than any previous author had done. And of course, one of James Barry's links with Cape Town was his, it, it's quite difficult, the his, her, you handled yes, that very well in the book, yes. was his duel with Clutie at Alphen. Yes, that was also, it, that was only documented by uh, uh, Clutie himself rather late in life, in, in, a, in a couple of sentences, but there's no doubt that the event did take place at Alphen. And... Mike, you're a retired surgeon. Did you write this biography with empathy? Was it simply a case study for you, the art of biography? Well, I wrote it with empathy because I went through a similar uh, course of training as, as that of Dr. Barry. I had to do anatomy, and uh, our professor of anatomy at the time was an Edinburgh man, so the, the actual process I went through would have been uh, um, similar to that of Dr. Barry to some degree. And I've also practiced medicine, and I can understand the difficulties. The, uh, the horror of uh, seeing a person operated upon for the first time without an anesthetic, the first time I saw a person being operated on was at Rondebosch Cottage Hospital, a neurosurgical case, and I collapsed in the proverbial heap in the corner and had to be resuscitated. It's a very, it's a very traumatic rite of passage that a young doctor goes through, and in those days, it, with patients screaming in pain, the only anaesthetic was a piece of thick leather to bite on. It was not easy. You also say in the book, sorry, we're running out of time now, but you also say in the book that he was irritable and arrogant. Of course he was irritable. I mean, living a lie every day of his life. Well, a masquerade like that, which lasted for um, over 50 years, was a very stressful thing to, uh, to undertake. And uh, as you put it, living a lie is, uh, is a stressful thing itself, particularly if one is a, an individual of integrity. And in fact, she kept her dresses in a trunk, thinking she would once again wear them, and never did. That was found after her death. Uh, Barry had very few possessions. She died intestate and uh, virtually poverty-stricken. But her, what possessions she had were taken over by 
her army agents, uh, whom she who'd looked after her finances for many years, and one of them was a trunk, a travelling trunk, and when it was opened, it was found to have few objects inside, but pasted inside the lid were a number of those fashion plates that were in magazines like Young English Woman's Magazine, and I'm sure you'll know the names better than I do, mid-19th century pictures of women in gorgeous dresses and that sort of thing. And that is a rather sad, hidden aspect of Dr. Barry's character. After all these years, she still wanted to be a woman. We were talking to Michael Dupree, whose book, written with Jeremy Dronfield, is called Dr. James Barry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time. Mike Fitzjames, uh, a trio of thrillers there, Tony Park, Lee Child and James Patterson. Happy New Year to listeners. I have three wonderful thrillers for you this month. My first choice is Red Earth by Tony Park. This is Tony Park's 13th novel, but far from being unlucky, this is without doubt his best yet, and a killer read from page one. The story starts with a hijacking just outside Durban, in which the car owner, a woman, fights back and kills one of the hijackers, wounding the other, but this one still escapes with the car, and her baby is in the back seat. Helicopter tracker pilot Nia Karras is called out to try and locate the stolen car. On the ground, a wildlife researcher, Mike Dunn, is the only one to take up the chase. Another massive problem ties up the KwaZulu-Natal police manpower, namely the assassination of the United States ambassador by a suicide bomber. This has caused chaos and the virtual shutdown of Durban and surrounding areas. Mike and Nia continue to track the baby through the game reserves, both in Zululand and up and into Zimbabwe, all the time being harassed by both the hijacker and a group of mystery Americans with a hidden agenda. This book will make your pulse race and keep you turning the pages until you're exhausted. My second choice is Cross the Line by James Patterson. It's always a red-letter day when the latest Alex Cross thriller arrives for review. This story starts with an early morning killing in Washington, D.C. The victim is a well-known police official. Needless to say, a decree of panic ensues, and under great pressure from the mayor, Alex Cross is pressed into service. Within a short period, a massive and extremely brutal crime wave breaks out in the D.C. area. The victims are all criminals, and it quickly becomes apparent that the murderer, or murderers, believe that justice is being served. Vigilante crimes are rare, but extremely difficult to process when multiple victims are involved, and no connection is apparent. Alex Cross is now chasing an adversary who has appointed himself judge, jury, and executioner. As the city is racked by panic and chaos, Cross's own position is also under pressure. What a great read. Totally satisfying. My final choice is Night School by Lee Child. This is the latest offering in the Jack Reacher thriller series. This story takes us back in time to the days when Reacher was technically still an MP in the U.S. military. His role as a fixer of problems for various U.S. administrations was already well established, 
and his black ops expertise was only used in time of desperation. The eavesdropping ability of the U.S. agencies worldwide is legendary, and on this occasion, an intercept has given them the sentence, the American wants $100 million. But for what, and from whom? It's 1996, and the Soviet Union is long gone, but this sounds like a new threat. Meanwhile, in a Hamburg apartment, a group of young Saudis are planning something big. Reacher together with a top FBI agent and a CIA analyst have been tasked to find the American, find out what he's selling and to whom. This was fantastic, mind-chilling plot. Do not miss this outstanding read. That's it for this month. My choices were The Red Earth by Tony Park, Cross the Line by James Patterson, and Night School by Lee Child. Enjoy your reading. Sure. Three thrillers there. And Beverly Rose Muller, you found an unexpectedly successful debut, spine thriller, in Sherry Lapina's The Couple Next Door. Any news that a child is missing fills us with horror. It is probably our most deeply held fear that our children will not be safe in their homes and streets, and we agonize with the families of those who seem to have disappeared. Author Sherry Lapena's debut novel, The Couple Next Door, is one of the most unexpectedly successful thrillers I've read in quite a while, not only because of its content, which revolves around the six-month-old baby girl who goes missing from her crib in the middle of the night. But it is also a clearly narrated novel with a deceptively simple theme. There are few characters, and although the initial plot seems obvious enough, Nothing is quite what it seems. We see the scary plot through the eyes of the distraught parents and also the police detectives who are trained to suspect family first. Anne and Marco are a successful couple who live in a smart neighborhood with a baby girl. They are invited to a small birthday party by the couple next door, Cynthia and Graham, sophisticated, worldly and childless. And for this reason, Cynthia asks Anne not to bring her baby, Cora, who's crying, she finds irritating. But at the last moment, the somewhat unreliable babysitter has to cancel, and Anne's husband persuades her to leave the baby in her nursery with the baby monitor on, assuring his worried wife that they'll check on Cora every half hour. Anne has struggled with depression after her lovely little girl was born. She feels fat frumpy and boring in comparison to the svelte, flirtatious Cynthia who drapes herself over Marco during the foursome celebration. The parents regularly check on the baby, but when Anne insists on returning home in the from next door in the early hours of the morning, slightly tipsy, the crib is empty. The front door is slightly open, but otherwise there is no sign of an intruder. What develops thereafter among the small cluster of potential suspects is a neat plot within a plot, with unexpected but not improbable twists. Anne is devastated, flawed with a guilt-fed feeling that she is a terrible mother, and of course once the news comes out that the couple were not in their home when the baby was taken, the social media trolls have a field day. 
At this point, it's difficult not to think of the case of the missing girl, Madeleine McCann, who was taken from a holiday apartment in Portugal during a family holiday there in 2007, while her parents were, were at a nearby restaurant with friends. She has never been found, remaining one of the most heavily reported missing child stories of all time. We agonized with those aghast parents as the days and then weeks and months went by with no results and what seems to have been a bungled search and the parents too were stigmatized. This story touches something deep within us. It is masterfully handled with just enough emotion tempered with a cold professional judgment of the detective to make for a compelling page turner and to fulfill the quote on the title page people are capable of almost anything a winning debut novel and i've been talking about the couple next door by sherry lepena published by bantam press and it does bring back madeleine mccain doesn't it that terrible story Melvin Minnar, newfound delights in Tim Peake's wonderful Hello, is this planet Earth? Not a moment after turning a few pages of this beautiful book of sensational photographs, two thoughts crossed my thrilled and fired-up mind. First, what terrific pleasure Galileo Galileo would have had could he have shown this book to that hard-headed Pope, Urban VIII, in 1650, ultimate leader of the church who in his holiness insisted that the earth was the center of the universe. Second, that childlike passenger joy of navigating geography from an aeroplane window, quietly matching map to land from the sky as one speeds across rivers and mountains, deserts and dales. That pleasure is more than tenfold subscribed by astronaut Tim Peake's ravishing images of Mother Earth, photographed from the International Space Station and the enthusiasm that permeates these descriptions of each. Hello, is this planet Earth? My view from the International Space Station is one of those picture books that holds you in an hypnotic trance to each page. It's the ultimate gift book for young and old. It is pure joy. In more than 150 pictures taken over his 186-day Principia mission working on the ISSS for Expedition 4647, this attractive publication, for all its captured visual beauty, is nothing like your display copy, coffee table book. It's a love affair photo album of the earth, about both the wonders and variety of its nature and the presence of mankind on its surface. The book's title is inspired by the time in 2015 that Peek miscalled a woman from the ISS and asked her, Hello, is this planet Earth? Loosely grouped in exhibition themes, the space journey takes one from mountains and valleys to oceans and deserts, from north to south pole and deep jungles to the enchantment of the sky beyond the view from Earth. It includes breathtaking aerial photos of cities illuminated by night, the famous urban parks and deserted islands, the northern lights and unforgettable vistas of places familiar and less so. When he returned to Earth on June 18th last year, he already had a massive social media following from posting many of his keen photographs and crisp captions online. For old and young alike, this was a real, very real-life, vigorous geography lessons. The book clinches the deal superbly. How beautiful is our magnificent world? 
Proceeds from the book will be donated to the Princess Trust, a charity that helps young people get into education, training and work. And yes, there is a gorgeous view of the Western Cape and the Peninsula in Hello, Is This Planet Earth? Vanessa Levenstein beguile us with Bernard Schlink's The Woman on the Stairs. Bernard Schlink, the author of The Reader, which was made into the film that finally gave Kate Winslet her Oscar, revisits the theme of nostalgia and regret in The Woman on the Stairs. The plot is far-fetched, however I thoroughly enjoyed the read. The book's a comfortable length of 225 pages, divided into three parts with three suitors, all pursuing The Woman on the Stairs. Trophy wife, muse and manipulator, Irene is the subject of more than just their affections. Art and life collide, and she becomes an object to be owned, much like her painting. Married to a wealthy industrialist, Peter Gunlach, a chance encounter leads Irene to the painter Karl Schwind, who paints his most brilliant work of art yet, a nude Irene descending a flight of stairs. The image of a staircase is one that runs throughout the novel. Some days she managed the stairs herself. Some days I would carry her. Not quite Dorian Gray, however the portrait does overlap into the subject matter's flesh and blood. The narrator, then a young, naive attorney, is appointed by the painter to try and reclaim his work of art. Yet, instead of representing his client's interests, the narrator soon becomes enamoured with Irene and becomes the third player in this messy duel, which results in the disappearance of both Irene's, the painting and the woman. Forty years later, the painting mysteriously reappears, much like the Pied Piper, it beckons all three men to its lair. The author does make odd and at times contrived choices. For example, giving Irene the pseudonym Irene Adler. Was he trying to capitalize on the success of the recent series of Sherlock Holmes? However, they don't really detract from his insights and reflections. I do not envy the young for the lives they have ahead of them, but I do envy them their short past. The remains of the day and what one does with those remains is a question which the narrator ruminates trying to understand the elusive, cruel nature of love. Bernard Schlink paints a picture of two worlds, one of order and sensibility, that which the narrator lived, and another world of spontaneity, that which the narrator fleetingly experienced. And perhaps it's only by imagining the what-ifs that we are finally able to let go, be in the now, and continue our flight up those never-ending stairs. And that's it then. Thank you for being with us. Today's winners, grab the piece of paper, Ronnie Peterson, uh, Margaret Baluka, it looks like, and Lammy O'Kennedy. We're going to ring you straight after this, too. <laughs> Do stay by your telephones. And it's Matinee up next with Sharon Swimmer. The next FMR book choice will be on the first Monday in February, as always, and that's Monday, February the 6th. And it'll be great to be with you again. Do remember that book choice is podcast each month www.fmr.co.za from Rick Everett who kindly compiled the music and cleverly kept the show on the road and from me, Gory Bowes-Taylor it's Happy New Year Reading Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books
Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FM.